Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. It's uh, episode. Welcome to um, 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 um Radio, episode seventy-five, I believe. That's not in the show notes, and I'm going to put it there now. Matt was just having a conversation with himself about what he was going to talk about this episode. So take it away. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a while, and um, we're sort of heads down. You know planning trying to get through that it's crazy how this july august is just like dead air <laughs> it's so hard to even have a conversation with people about doing things every in july year and august um the seasonal thing yeah i mean yeah the thing is like i i've i've done you know i mean the office carries on as normal in general sure people go away on holiday and stuff but i mean it's sort of business as usual, apart from the, you know, whatever, two weeks or something that most people duck out for a while. And um, anyway, so we are get, getting a little bit of traction now talking to people about training during the summer. I think that is potentially a good thing to do during the summer because it's hard to find time for training during the busy periods. So maybe that's the... Uh, the busy exploration periods, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's the new angle. So yeah, we're just sort of... So it's kind of weird because it's what is it april and we're now planning like basically through the autumn and into 2019 which feels so wrong but that's wow. where we are yeah. what's how's the training going Are you doing a bunch yeah we're we're getting a lot of um a lot of really interesting chances to to help people mostly with grassroots beginner get people on the like onto the bottom of the learning curve basically with uh with python and machine learning i mean people want to get into the analytics and awesome cool visualizations and is this models but yeah is this inside companies or are these uh like wider courses than that um it's it's mostly inside companies uh i think actually that's that's all we've got now oh we are doing um we are doing something in the UK, actually, which will be an open course, but we're being engaged to put that on for other people kind of thing for the pub, like the public. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm really excited. I mean, I, you know, I didn't really regard training as a core part of our business until a lot of people started asking about it. Um, it's, you know, I think you've done a bit of training recently, right? Uh, I have a training course coming up next week. Uh, on, that should definitely be in the show notes. Uh, it's <laughs> on Friday. I'm just going to pull up my calendar here. Friday, April 27th, hands-on introduction to PyTorch for machine learning. Hosted at the AT&T Executive Education and Conference Center in Austin, Texas. Uh, Expiro in conjunction with 
Global Data Geeks. We're uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it's a cool. public public class. Anyone can come. Anyone can pay to come. <laughs> <laughs> actually, they they can pay. They don't actually have to show up. I guess that's optional. Um, that's cool. So PyTorch in a day. So how do you? Oh no, in half a day. It's only four hours. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So how do you describe the sort of prerequisites for that? Uh, so the prerequisites are you have to know at least a programming language. Okay. Check. You have to have at least played with Python a couple times. Check. Uh, and you will get more out of the course if you have built neural networks before. But that is not a prerequisite. Okay, cool. So let me give you a, so we have a, we just, we just built an application uh, domain for this course. So it wasn't just like straight um, intro to PyTorch. It, I, can you hear that there's some child screaming in the hallway? Is this, can, no? No, I can't hear that. Okay, I'll just keep talking and talk over it. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, there's, this um, there's an angle on this course, which is customer bucketing. So we wanted to at least do something that was going to be fun. This is more like a professional intro to, hey, how you doing? You have half a Friday, come down, and this mm. is what deep learning is, and this is what a neural network is, and this is what PyTorch is. But more than that, we wanted to say, here is an actual application space, customer bucketing for potentially a SaaS company or for a online retailer, uh, something like that. And we can um, we'll show people how to predict which buckets new customers fit into based on certain characteristics. So incoming characteristics include demographics. There's some demographic information. And there are product interests. So for, in for instance, if you had a, if you had a, some information about a newly onboarded customer, what, what did they order in their first purchase? You could fit them into a bucket and then as you move through time, you could update that bucket for each one of your customers. Now, correspondingly, we also have information on product buckets. So this is just a fun thing a, pizza, a data set will send you home with. Um, so you can, you can also bucket products if you want. Um, and then, so I've gone in reverse chronological order here because I guess that's what we're going to finish with. What we're going to start with is um, building how to build variables and uh, vectors and constructs in PyTorch. Then we're going to move into one of my favorite things that is not often covered in the in the literature or in a lot of courses I've seen, which is just function approximation with neural networks. Oh, then we do the customer bucketing thing. Bucketing thing. Mm -hmm. Then we do cross validation. That's that. Four hours in, out, data, code. Take it all home. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So is is PyTorch your sort of uh, favorite playground at the moment? Ooh, okay. I just had this conversation at 2.30 today with another data scientist. And I am super excited about TensorFlow eager execution mode. Eager execution. You know about this? No, what's the eager execution? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you know PyTorch? Do you know? I know about reluctant execution. That's how all of my software runs. <laughs> do you do you play with? I'm sure you've played with TensorFlow. You guys yeah. build things in TensorFlow. Have you built stuff in PyTorch? 
I've built stuff in Torch. I haven't same, used PyTorch. Same, same thing. Right. Okay. So when you build in Torch, uh, it, it you have a dynamic. You're basically building a dynamic computation graph. You build in TensorFlow. You're building a static computation graph. Mm -hmm. So when you're finished building in TensorFlow, you have a thing which looks like a module, and you can just pull that out of your um, project, and you can basically insert it anywhere for productionizing that model. Um, you can't do that with a PyTorch model as easily because you don't have that static framework, right? right. Um, but the benefit of the dynamic computation graph is that you get to debug in real time. So like you press, uh, this is for the people who haven't played with Torch PyTorch, uh, you, it runs just like uh, interpreted code. You'd expect interpreted code to. So you just press go in a set of code, in a code block and it goes. That's not how it works in PyTorch, in uh, TensorFlow. You got to define a graph, then you have to propagate information, so-called tensors through that graph. So it's awesome working in PyTorch. Very simple and very fast to iterate on models. So really good for experimentation. A little bit harder to productionize. And then the converse is true for TensorFlow. However, TensorFlow eager execution mode, which was just released in the core package in uh, version um, 18, is uh, it was 18 that just came out or 17? 18, I think. Whatever the newest version is. Okay. <laughs> is um, basically like um, real time execution for TensorFlow. So you can just say, you know, just like define a little code block, write a little code block and run it. And it just runs right there. So what happens, what ends up happening is that you build, you know, like if you're iterating through model building or something, uh, you build this model as you go, just like you would like to do in a torch setting or something like that, like um, Keras. And uh, and then when you're finished, you also already have a graph built, which you can then export to TensorFlow normal execution mode and like deploy it on smartphones or whatever. So oh, that's pretty cool. Stinking awesome. And I have a feeling that the the TensorFlow your execution mode thing is going to displace a lot of market share from PyTorch mm -hmm. because it's supported by this big heavy organization and there's lots of updates and it's more stable and blah blah blah. So yeah. pretty excited. Yeah. What is the sort of? Um, I haven't really been paying attention to the status of of the whole torch project um it, i like is pytorch part of the core torch project per se or no. is it so, oh okay so it's like a bolted on thing no um, no it, well it's separate but it's someone else's library yeah um so the, in other words the the torch um developers maintainers have no obligations to pytorch to sort of right keep it right so, but I think I saw somebody, was it you or maybe Lucas saying that PyTorch had a, or Torch has a bit of a change coming with not having to define variables in the slightly clunky way that you have to right now. Is that an imminent thing? Yeah, I think that Ethan and, and uh, Lucas were having a conversation. I don't know. That's that's the first, when they had that conversation, that was the first I heard of it. Um, okay. It's, I mean, I that's can't see awesome. That. Yeah, it's, yeah. Anything that smooths that path uh, is is cool, but it doesn't sound like it's enough to like. Clearly, TensorFlow isn't staying still either. So, right. um, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I will say that dealing with variables and to NumPy and uh, <laughs> it's dot NumPy and then, uh, you know, it's, it feels very non-Pythonic. You know, right. it feels it feels statically typed, right? And it's kind of drives me nuts. Oh, hi, Maverick! My puppy wanted to come say hello. You want to get on the show? You're making a lot of noise over there. You're making a lot of noise. So, um, yeah, very excited to see variables. Cool. On. Well, uh, that'll be. I'm looking forward to hearing how how the course goes and how people, yeah, respond to the challenge of learning about neural nets and you know a, a what would you call it a idiomatic corner of of python in an afternoon or a morning or whatever you're doing yeah uh That's nine o'clock cool. a.m till okay. 1 p.m that's probably best I'm, so there's there's two of us teaching it it's going to be uh one of my team members ryan brady and myself um ryan is super, super smart uh, machine learning data science guy who also happens to be an amazing HPC developer and mm. like spent many, many years like writing super fast C++ code on GPUs, like big distributed private clusters. So um, I say that only to say that he, he actually wrote most of the material and uh, we're going to work together and he's going to do, my hope is anyway, that it's going to be like a big ask me anything session. Mm. Um, so like, I'm going to go in there with a whiteboard and stand up there and talk about how the math works while he's going through the code and we're going to go back and forth. Um, nice. So I'm, I'm hoping the material that we've designed is, is very short. I mean, if, if we were going through it, like if you were just going through it as like a code review, it would take you minutes. Um, so I'm really hoping we can just like blow out each section into really heavy question and answer sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck with that. That sounds, uh, sounds like fun. Wait, is that, that's like tomorrow? No, it's next week. Next week. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Take lots of pictures. That's the, the thing that we always forget to do in courses. Um, let's take some pictures. I, I take, if you take them from behind people, then you don't have too much to worry about with like, you know, people's faces and stuff that are being identifiable in the photos. But it's always nice to have these things to use to show other people what kind of stuff you can do. Yeah, well, that's true. We are built this machine learning course. Who knows what kind of facial recognition the students will be able to build after it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sending a note now. That's a, a good idea that I hadn't considered. Many, many pictures. I'm on it. Yeah, it's good when there's two of you, you can actually get the time to do that. Um, awesome. Yeah, so we you know, um, like I hope you enjoy that experience because we really enjoy teaching. It's great meeting people. Um, the challenge with bigger groups, uh, and of course, bigger groups are great because they're more cost effective for people. But um, it, it is a challenge to get through the material at a decent pace. Um, now, and slowing down is not necessarily a bad thing because there's more soak time and people. You don't drop anybody that way. Sure. Um, so, but we're still, I think, I feel like we're still trying to figure out what the best can, I mean, the last time we went and taught, but, you know, people are like, this is like a semester's worth of material. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to blow through it in, you know, four or five days or whatever. Um, and it, it does feel a bit like that. Coding's hard, man, because everything's like codependent. 
Yep. You, you know, because the learning curve is a. Yeah, and it sort of just has to be. I feel like saying to people, "You're embarking on like a a five, ten year journey here," um, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to hear, right? When you start learning something. Yes, it um, is. You know, the good news is we can make a cool little plot in three lines of code. Um, the the bad news is <laughs> doing all the things that you want to do uh, aren't like that. Anyway, it's okay. It's true. It's uh, that's the the joy of uh, learning new skills. So usually we do these um, understandable radio episodes every week, and so there's I, I just kind of the things that come off the top of my head are the things that have happened in the past week. But as we've been talking here, I've been trying to write notes about things that I want to mention on the show, because it's been like three weeks since we've had an episode and okay. lots has gone down, man. Lots has gone down. You know what happened recently, last week in uh, Austin? Anaconda Con. Right. It yeah. was pretty awesome. Was it? Yeah. What? Uh, so describe Anaconda Con. Very technical. Uh, attendees were... Uh, if not data scientists, they were closely related to data scientists. There were a lot of um, sort of like DevOps people enabling production of, of machine learning models. Uh, there were a lot of folks who are um, like cloud managers integrating with the data teams, data engineers, data analysts. Um, so the event was, again, highly technical. And I just had the best time meeting folks there because you could just walk up to anyone in the room and just chit chat about your craziest ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So, so it cool. what it, what it wasn't then was just about the like Anaconda, Conda packaging, stuff like that. It's much more applied than that. It sounds like. Yeah. So there were three tracks going on the whole time. It's a little tiny conference. It was like two days. Okay. Two, two and a half days, uh, and I'm going to make a very, very poorly formed guess that there were a thousand, two thousand, I don't know, 1,500 attendees. I'm just, I'm literally just guessing based on what the room looked like. Okay, that's, that's a much bigger number than I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say 150. No, it's way more than that. Um, yeah. But anyways, Where was it then? It was in uh, the, there's like, they had three ballrooms in a big hotel downtown. Okay. Um, yeah, so three tracks going on, open source track, uh, something, real world data science track, and um, Anaconda track. So one of the tracks was about applying Anaconda solutions to your problems. Um, but the other two tracks were like, this is, problems that we're working on at our company. This is how we solve them, or this is, we haven't solved them yet, help, which is cool. And then, uh, and then the sort of open source data science track was a bit of that, but a bit more like, hey, look at these new cool tools that are out. So, um, so it was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, so while you adjust your focus slightly, uh, I'm just gonna ask, if uh, you you got any, like, I'm curious about 
the company that used to be Continuum Analytics and is now called Anaconda. Um, mm -hmm. Like, are they moving to, towards a more sort of product oriented? I know they had like Wakari or Wakiri, which was like a cloud implementation, sort of hosted notebooks and so on. Uh, I, I imagine or guess that they've got some kind of corporate offering of Anaconda that's like supported and blah, blah, blah. Um, are there are there other products or products for the masses, as it were, that they're um, marketing these days? Or what's their sort of business plan? They sell Anaconda Enterprise Edition. That's it. That's the, yep. That's yep. the offering. Okay. Um, so it's a combination of so, I mean, probably half the people listening to this show already are using Anaconda Open Distro. So uh, yeah. it, it's awesome, obviously. Um, and the Enterprise Edition is basically uh, enables data science teams to work with data engineering teams, to work with DevOps teams, to work with software engineering teams. It, it allows collaboration. Um, so there's like uh, hosted notebooks and projects that work inside of the organization with permissions and um, allotments and stuff. And then um, it's deployed on your internal systems, obviously. So you can be in a setting where you're behind a firewall, which is pretty cool. So like if, for instance, like if you work at a, I don't know, power plant or something and you have a totally air gapped corporate network, uh, you can still do things like Conda install torch by torch <laughs> which is pretty neat yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool we should we should probably like try and track down someone from anaconda to like I, i'd love to hear more about uh what the enterprise edition has in it It sounds like it's got stuff in it that it, it, you know isn't available um mm -hmm. without without paying for anaconda but you know our experience of going into these organizations and trying to do a training course right where you're you know, like in general, we're setting up people to do Python programming on, you know, machines that haven't been used for that sort of stuff before. It's almost always Windows. Um, there's all sorts of like it's highly heterogeneous, even shops that are pretty um, standardized have a couple of machines that are either possessed or uh, otherwise uncooperative. Um, there's proxies, there's firewalls, there's blacklisted websites, like it's, there's and some... Some, of, some of those things are sort of adaptive. So it's like the first three people <laughs> can, can download this GitHub repository and then everybody else is blocked. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, I assume that that's the environment that Anaconda Enterprise is designed to sort of yep. homo homogenize or simplify, um, so I'd love to be able to like recommend a path for people to kind of, because you know it's one thing saying yeah let's get all these people trained up on scientific Python, but it's another thing to then support those people with the tools that they need to get stuff done and not have it be a horrendously frustrating experience, right? Well, I, it turns out that I have uh, made friends with a, a guy Michael Grant here and Doctor Michael Grant here in Austin. Uh, who is an absolute genius and also happens to work for Anaconda. So um, he, so we had a, a guest on the show. Wow, years! Can you believe it was years ago now? Uh, <laughs> Tim Tim Hopper, 
Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Tim. So this is, this is a good friend of Tim's. So okay. I, I'll ask him to come on. That'd be fun. Um, yeah, great. We should get Tim back. Yeah. He said he'll be at Sci-Fi. Are you coming okay. down to Sci-Fi? I don't know. Jury's out. It's, yeah. It's, we've got a lot of travel in, in May and June. I've heard about this. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But, um, it's, you know, it's tempting. Uh, do like Austin. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> did we mention the, uh, paper that was submitted in the middle of the night on the show yet? Does that uh, no, I don't think we've heard that story either. Okay. So, uh, Matt was down in Austin a while back and we, <laughs> turns out that the night we went out to dinner and a couple of bottles of wine was the night that. Uh, the deadline for sci-fi <laughs> submissions for papers. Um, so we were egging on through text messages, uh, Diego to submit <laughs> a sci-fi paper by like, he had like 48 minutes left or something. <laughs> and so uh, I woke up the next morning uh, to an email that said, you are the co-presenter on the paper submitted by Diego Casimiro. So um, that was funny. Awesome. Awesome, nerdy, practical joke. Um, <laughs> that paper and my other paper were both rejected from SciPy. However, what was really cool is that SciPy is, it uses a double open peer review process. So have you, have you seen this yet? So you were able to retaliate against all the people who rejected your papers. Retaliate? <laughs> I'm able to thank. For their suggestions. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I was involved in sci-fi reviewing for a few years. Um, I always found it fairly painful, but it sounds like the process maybe may have improved. <laughs> Put it this way: okay. there were spreadsheets. There, there were spreadsheets doing things that I've never seen spreadsheets do before, and I don't mean that in a in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm like, this is SciPy. Why am I getting, why am I reviewing abstracts in Excel? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't uh, get a look behind that curtain, but I did, I did get awesome feedback. Um, and it seems like the level of papers that were submitted this year must have been amazing because cool. the reviews that I got on, on my paper submitted solo, um, were like pretty graded high on the, on the scale. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm hoping that it was rejected because all the papers that are submitted are like off the stinking charts. So <laughs> yeah, I'm right. very excited to go and, and hear all the cool stuff people are doing. Yeah, um, be prepared to not sleep for several nights afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready, man. There's a note on the show notes here that I'm not sure I'm prepared to talk about yet, um, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to introduce it, and then maybe by next show I'll be ready to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, mixture density networks. You ever played with mixture density modeling? No. Gaussian but... mixture models. Come on, you've you've done Gaussian mixture modeling. Come on, have you not? Maybe no. I unless no. it goes by some other name. Okay. Well, um, 
<laughs> well, you know, sort of, people, we like rename things all the time, yes. don't we? Co-creaking, blah, blah. We do. Uh, probability density function, like a Gaussian distribution. <clears throat> the models that you build are mixtures of those PDFs. And that's cool. They work really well for certain applications. But now people are building, and this is not a new idea, but it's new to me. <clears throat> people are building mixture density networks. So these networks are now learning to optimize the hyperparameters of the multi-faceted oh <laughs> PDFs on the output side. Okay. And it is awesome. So imagine a world in which you have a neural network, <clears throat> the output of which is just like a linear layer and segments of that linear layer's output correspond to the hyperparameters of many, specified by you, different model uh, PDFs, probability, probability density functions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a sort of head-spinningly, mathematically weird situation that I have not I have not fully figured out yet. Um, but I will say it's pretty cool to tick around with these things. Um, the immediate result of playing with these types of models is that you can, much, much like uh, mixture modeling, like Gaussian mixture modeling, you can um, you can output results which are uh, multi-valued uh, for a single input. So, for instance, like you know, functional. We talked about function approximation earlier. Uh, you can regress a function with a neural network. And if you transpose that function, you put, potentially you come up with non, a non-functional mapping, right? Because there's multiple values for output values for one input. And that's something that's, I was going to say impossible to do. I'm not sure that claim holds. I'm going to say it and our listeners are going to correct me because you guys are smarter than I am. So it's impossible to do that <laughs> with the neural network. Um, but it's very possible to do that using probability density uh, yeah. model um, mixtures. And uh, doing it optimally used by tuning those hyperparameters is super stinking cool. Yeah, Why do I care? I'm not sure. Why does someone else care? Well, the one, the best paper I read on the subject was a Google team who used the a, a mixture density network to approximate a, fun, a uh, securities price prediction. So they picked, I don't remember what it was, maybe it was commodities. So say they were predicting uh, the price of the Euro and um, within your intrazonal bands, you have these small changes. Um, those are easy to approximate. And then the, the problem is that when you jump to a new price regime, if some big shift happens in the market or the news or something, those those dramatic shifts are really hard to model. And um, this team at Google had um, success, demonstrated success in this paper modeling this changes. So that's cool. So so the idea is that it, it, these things should be good at modeling sort of uh, I, guess, I was going to say natural systems, but I guess I mean sort of stochastic systems yep. or, or potentially even systems that may even have a sort of chaotic behavior. 
Yep. So that should be really interesting to to earth scientists, I think. Yeah. Um yeah, very cool. No, I like I like the idea of um Oh, another one. I thought of another idea. Sorry, I don't want to talk about. Go ahead. Networks learning um, or models learning to parameterize other models, so that yeah, models are actually just parameterizing, say, physical models or exactly, yeah. You know, that's that's a really interesting development. But as you say, starts to get really hard to think about. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, when I was reading this, not, not the paper, the 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 nice, amazingly nice blog post that I'll post in the show notes, uh, description of of mixture density networks. Um, I kept thinking about multiple, like systems of linear equations uh, or systems of nonlinear equations, more importantly, um, and and using the outputs from that network as the as the coefficients in in those. Uh, yeah right set of equations isn't that cool i i again like i'm just starting to think about this so i don't know what i'm actually talking about yet um but it's gonna be awesome (laughs) yeah i think there's some fun visualization challenges in there as well in that problem for for you know watching these networks learn and um i don't know i suppose just for interest sake trying to figure out what how they're learning and what they're doing but i mean um yeah i i hope that we see some people tackling stuff like that the viz the viz hackathon we're doing in june but um yeah we'll see if people go there (laughs) okay (laughs) i want i wish i could be there man it's gonna be awesome uh, I've been talking about my bullet points all day. Do you, I don't want to interrupt you, but I have like 10 more things to talk about. <laughs> really? You said yeah. you had two at the beginning. Oh yeah. It's the list is long now. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Well, I brought, since I brought it in, I'll, I'll show you one of the things I've been playing with. I, I quite like these little sort of toys and whatnot. Um, is it an Arduino? It is actually a sort of an Arduino. It's a, an Microsoft Azure IOT dev kit. Ooh. made by mx chip um Ooh. yeah it's a pretty neat little board uh it's got um a few breakouts along the bottom that you can see uh there's a little like um I, don't know, I guess it's an led screen it's fairly high resolution so you can put text and things on it uh blows me away some of these bits of hardware but i mean like these little tiny little black chips at the bottom there i don't know if you can even see them yep that's like there's a security chip, which I think carries some kind of hardware certificate um, so that you can secure the board. There's a, the second one is an accelerometer and gyroscope. The third one is a magnetometer. Then there's a pressure sensor. And the last one is a humidity and temperature sensor. That's all the that uh, stuff that's all the guts that's in your cell phone. Yeah, right. But it's it, the, it just blows me away how tiny they are. Uh, there's a little user controllable LED. There's a microphone, the headphones jack. Um, yeah, so it, you know the idea is that um, you just plug this in by uh, you know with a USB, and then you can upload stuff to it just like you do to an Arduino. 
uh, it's basically an Arduino, but um, then Microsoft have put a bunch of things in place, I guess, to make it easier to stream it to their IoT um, solutions on Azure so that you can stream the data there, capture it, do some like online learning, um, that kind of thing. And it's pretty easy to get it up and going. Um, unless you're on a Mac, in which case it's a little bit trickier, but not, not impossible to do on Mac and Linux. But the thing's only 37 bucks or something like that, 35 bucks. Um, so it's quite a nice little package. You can build a cell phone. <laughs> I suppose you could. You could. Does it have a speaker? It, uh, it, well, it's, it's got headphones, yeah. But obviously, it doesn't have uh, radio. Well, it's got Wi-Fi. Wi so yeah, you could do something with the Wi-Fi. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, it's kind of cute. But so we've been playing with it to try and um, get some uh, little exercises and tutorials going for the code show thing that we're doing at EAGE. And I'm hoping that we can buy enough of them that we can give some of them away as like awards to people who uh, achieve making a pocket cell phone, $35 cell phone in a cigarette carton or whatever the modern equivalent of <laughs> Altoid tin. Whatever. I was very impressed to meet someone today who showed up with a with a dumb phone, with a like a flip phone. Okay, yeah. Was, cool. I, I haven't seen one in a long while. <laughs> yeah, Bre Brendan's got a uh, absolutely tiddly little Android phone. Uh -huh. That's pretty cute. That oh, like, I've seen that little tiny thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got like four icons on the home screen kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I don't know, retro tech. Um, the coolest cell phone I, I saw, and I don't know what it is or where it came from, but it had like a, what do you call it, e-paper screen, so Ooh. super low power, yeah. and looked really awesome and kind of sharp. Yeah. Um, Except that it took 30 seconds to update the screen every time you... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't, it didn't do very much. Um, yeah, I'm because I'm a bit disillusioned with my smartphone and smartphones in general. The one thing that's keeping me going is AR, um, mm, yeah. which I, I, you know, I'm still like flailing around trying to figure out how to play effectively with that. We've been toying around with Sumerian, which is an Amazon AWS um, solution. Turns out my phone's not compatible with AR Core, the Android AR <sighs> equivalent of AR Kit on iOS. Um, so no, yeah, so anyway, I need to buy a Pixel 2 basically. Yeah. Um, Check out my phone. <laughs> We're going to do this. Mine's all shattered and pieces are falling out, which reminds me, <laughs> still up. Why, why don't I buy you a Pixel 2? I, when Matt was here, I slapped his phone out of his hand and it shattered on the ground. And I finally got it repaired Oh, in, when I was in Houston a few weeks ago. Um, You've just been cutting your face up with it for months? Yeah, it's pretty amazing how long I lived with it. It was pretty bad. People were like double take every time I got it out of my pocket. Uh, <laughs> and you remembered then... me every time. Oh, it's so sweet. Oh, Graham. Um, <laughs> but then the, the new screen is, uh, unfortunately, I they dropped this on the floor the other day. This is, oh, no. You see, the, the thing is so heavy and it's so slippery. Yeah. It's like yeah. holding a piece of like, I don't know, super slippery stuff. And... Um, <laughs> 
and it's got so much momentum like when it hits the ground it really hits the ground with a thud um anyway so stupid thing um i wanted to ask you if you've tried hydrogen uh <laughs> a man cannot live upon hydrogen alone <laughs> um do you know no, we did some crazy things in university, but I never tried that. <laughs> I see. Um, hydrogen is a plugin for the Atom text editor. Okay. Tried it? I feel like... No. No, I don't use Atom. Uh, neither did I until now. I always use Atom because hydrogen okay. is so awesome. So it's basically notebook functionality for your text editor. So what you can execute code in line regular code like you write code in a text editor it runs like regular code you don't change anything and you can just highlight parts of it and press shift enter and it runs in the in the stinking text editor so like for example like matplotlib it'll just whoop, a plot just comes yeah. out it i'm is... looking at the this the this page now and atom.io that looks amazing. And I was going to say, wow, that sounds like the Brett Victor thing. And it's sure enough, it's inspired by Brett Victor. Um, have you, you, you've seen Brett Victor's amazing JavaScript dream from like probably four years ago now? More. Uh, not, I'm just oh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. It was from a, uh, I can't remember the name of the conference, but a computer science conference in Montreal, probably. It could even have been like 2012, um, like on interactive JavaScript or interactive code in general. He's a very thoughtful guy. I think he's called WorryDream, WorryDream.com, yeah. um, WorryDream on Twitter. Cool. And yeah, so that's that's really exciting because, you know, he sort of laments how here we are after 40 years or 50 years or whatever of computer coding being a reasonably mainstream thing and we're still hacking away in text editors. Um, I'm going to check that out. A lot of people really like, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Microsoft Visual Studio Code. Mm -hmm. Have you tried that? Yep, I played with it. But I haven't played with it for, I don't know, a year, a couple okay. of years. So I think it has some nice like GitHub integrations so that you can sort of see when bits of code were last changed and that's cool yeah there's some nice little bits like that i'm try, in sublime um try hydrogen you're going to love it yeah okay i'll give it a go i'm not Does... even i'm not even using notebooks anymore that's not serious nah, well it's that's not totally true but it is it is almost true like the only time, so there's no plug, like it doesn't work with um, interactive visuals like Bokeh or something like that. Um, but if I'm not doing any of that stuff, I'm not using notebooks anymore. It's that good. Wow, that's really cool. Can you write Markdown in it? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't tried. Because then it actually just is. It's got language, it's got language kernel plugins for each thing. So actually, probably not. I don't know. Let's see. I'm going to do it while we're talking. Markdown's one of those things that I just think Markdown's fantastic. Yes. And um, 
it's hard to it's hard to talk to somebody who like is into you know word and stuff about how awesome markdown is do you know what i mean like if if you've never experienced latex say um or or i don't know just pure content driven markup and, and layout and so on it's really hard for people to appreciate why working in a text editor would be better than a gui but no kernel for grammar github markdown found okay that's weird so it's trying to like execute it then but yeah. i wonder if you could just like put markdown in comments and then have it formatted but then it's getting out of control that now you like what have you even yeah. written at the end of that <laughs> ruined the process Okay, pretty cool. I'll check it out. Check it out. It works for Python, works for JavaScript, works for some other stuff. So it's going to be revolutionary. Uh, okay, next bullet point. Have you ever used... <laughs> so we're just moving right along here. Uh, have you... The tool shed? This is yes. like Graham's tool shed. Well, I was at a conference last week, so I've just started playing okay. with new tools. I started hearing about things people are doing and seeing stuff that is really cool, like, for instance, using... Data Shader. Have you played with Data Shader yet? Okay. Yeah, I have. Ooh. What are you doing yeah, with it? Nothing, but I've played with it. And I think I, because that came out, I want to say it was at a SciPy, but um, yeah. So I don't know. I haven't checked in with it in probably a year, but what's what's that? What's Data Shader up to these days? To getting more awesome? So, yes, they are into that. Um, they. I just used Data Shader the other day to uh, plot 1 billion points in indeed a notebook. And that's pretty awesome. So my idea was that I wanted to plot large graphs. You know, we were doing all this work with graph. They, uh, the company is still doing a lot with graphs. Uh, and I wanted to plot 1 billion nodes or whatever, 10 million nodes and a bunch more edges, something, uh, they promised that you can do it. And I haven't actually gone through the exercise of doing it yet, but um, it it I saw a demo and they're plotting okay. very large graphs, so that's cool. Yeah, I thought it was for more for sort of um, rastery stuff, but it's it's for vectory stuff as well, is it? No, it, well, it does it rasterizes whatever you feed it, so um, you can make it look interactive if you you know continue to cycle new shaded okay. objects onto the whatever you're using, like the browser or notebook or whatever. I see. Um, so that's what I was doing when I did my little project. Um, and it's great. So I seem to remember too that it was really um, integrated or, or, or dependent on Bokeh, right? You can use Bokeh. You also can use Matplotlib. Oh, okay. That's cool. Because I don't really like Bokeh. I don't know. I, and I can't really articulate why. I've just never got it. But as Seriously? you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to stuff like that. I only... I like... Well, I like it just because it's easy if you want to do an interactive plot on the... in your face on something like a notebook or whatever. Uh, it's certainly... It does not do the same type of quality like uh, publication quality plots that MapUpLive or something does. What do you use for interactive stuff, visualizer stuff? Well, 
if we really mean it, then we do it in the browser with JavaScript. Sure. Um, and like D3. Same, but just, but I mean, I'd love something that I could wield more easily on a day-to-day. -day. So I've got on my to-do list, I need to check out Vega, which looks pretty cool. Um, and the other thing is PyViz. Those are the two things that I have to look at before Copenhagen. <laughs> well, PyViz is an assemblage of pieces, right? So I think, right. okay, so I don't totally get that um, ecosystem. There's Me another either. one in there. That... Yeah, it's like Bokeh, Hollow Views, Geo Yeah, what's Hollow Views? Uh, I don't know. It's not Bokeh. Uh, yeah. It's somebody else, okay. like it. But I mean, no, it fits it's in not... though. It, I mean, it's not a competitor to. It fits in the pipeline with. Yeah, right. Um, who is this making hollow views? The Institute for Adaptive and Neural Computation at University of Edinburgh. Um, yeah. So it was obviously some domain-specific uh, tool that's kind of going mainstream or trying to. So many tools that, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I, I guess you, the Ludditism is a survival technique, right? And <laughs> yes, it is. You know, it's a filter. Time is a filter, uh, I guess. I'm trying to think of an example when that paid off for me, but I can't, I can't really think <laughs> of one. Because <laughs> uh, you just never know what's going to stick or what's going to just fade off into the background. Yeah, everything seems so cool and shiny when it actually comes out. Well, I'll tell you what's going to stick. It's TensorFlow eager execution mode. Yeah, right. So Theano, there's a thing that you could have invested a whole ton of effort and time in, right? And now it's gone in like less than yeah. a couple of years. It went from being the uh, sort of deep learning network for or a framework for Python to being shutting down. <laughs> what else is coming up? We get we we have to sign off pretty soon. Any other events coming up shortly? Oh, the uh, you want to talk about AAPG? AAPG's coming up. Uh, what is it? 18th, 19th, 20th of May. We're doing the hackathon and then AAPG is right after that. Salt Lake City, Utah. There are several machine learning related sessions talks um i think there's some kind of forumy discussiony thing happening um there may be some other things i'm not even aware of and then we're doing this unsession unconference type discussion afternoon on the wednesday uh and yeah there's going to be loads of software underground folks there softwareunderground.org and um it's, it's going to be cool it's going to be really good the venue for the hackathon looks very cool by the way um where, it's what's old, it called? It's called Church and State. Um, it's an old church, so it's got cathedral ceilings, as it were. But it's not an old state. The separation holds. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, it's Good. stateless. Good. Um, so that's going to be fun. And then the next big thing for us is EAGE in Copenhagen, and we're talking about doing a. We're trying to find a time slot for it, but I think we're going to try and make it happen. Over the summer in Calgary, a summer school um, 
we're probably not going to call it summer school because agile summer school doesn't abbreviate well but we'll we'll come up with a name for it and it, it's going to be like a, a kind of a chilled out course slash workshop thing that's the vision uh open to that is a gross vision <laughs> gross yes <laughs> as in course or yes or take it however you will wait um so what um, yeah. is do you have any more what kind of what's the subject matter um say? i well i don't know i mean it's someone tell it yeah someone tell us what the subject matter should be i mean it's like a lot of our events if someone rocks up and wants to do whatever they want to do that's great visualization web applications um machine learning uh yeah like it, just learn just start from the beginning and figure out what on earth numpy is for or something like that that's cool too signal processing um yeah it's a bit I, I realize that all sounds pretty vague but we want to do something in calgary we haven't done anything in calgary for quite a while and we want to do something over the summer because the summer looks kind of empty otherwise <laughs> i hear you so uh before we joined the show today matt was talking about his professional headshots they took today so if you're listening to this show on the radio you should go check it out on youtube because matt is looking and i quote quite smart today so oh, yes. the question is matt how many ties do you own <laughs> i used to really like ties i bet i have 50. 50 any bow ties yeah oh yeah all right, see you next week on Assemble Radio. <laughs>